I have the real privilege today of being able to continue bringing the word from our Kings and Kingdoms series. Now, I'm not sure what you personally feel about the subject of history and whether you enjoyed this or despised it when you had to study it at school. I personally took history as a subject right in summer trick, so obviously liked it. And my husband, Mike, teaches history at primary school level, so clearly history is something that's rather enjoyed in our home. But I know that for many of you, um, and I do say many of you, um, this is not the case. I know there are a lot of people who are not huge fans of history because they really feel that it's something that is terribly boring and it's so irrelevant to be learning about dates and dead people. But we are right in the series, in the middle of a series, that's all about history. The history of the kings of Israel and Judah. And there's very little that is boring about this history. If this were a movie or a, a TV series, it would absolutely be X-rated for so many reasons. And it is jam-packed with action. The kings of Judah and Israel had absolute power. They were not running these democratic societies. And it meant that they had total influence over their subjects. And their character then and their conduct Significant, significantly shaped society during their rules. They stood as a representative of the nation before God, but also as a representative of God before the nation. Today in our Kings and Kingdom series, we're going to be looking at chapters 15 and 16 of 1 Kings. Last week, Brad shared about the kingdom being divided after the reign of Solomon, and I have sourced a map I think would make it visually easier to understand some of what we're unpacking. Now this division, according to the map as you can see it there, means that the name Israel no longer referred now to the whole nation, but only to the ten tribes of the north, and it's depicted there um, with all the green colour, and the southern tribes of Benjamin and Judah were known by the name of the larger one now, Judah, and that's depicted by the orange colour on the map. And as you can see on the map as well, Judah kept the capital Jerusalem and the royal line of David. And the ten tribes in the north, which are now called Israel, they set up their own centers of worship at Bethel and Dan. The bulk of the narrative from this point in the book of Kings is devoted um, to the history of these two kingdoms, in which the writer kind of ping-pongs between accounts of the overlapping reigns of the kings in each kingdom. And the account of the reign of a king in one kingdom is followed each time by the account of the reign of the king or kings of the other kingdom who reigned at the same time that they did. And there are just two aspects of the king's rule or kingdom that is very significant in this record. Firstly, the spiritual qualities was their worship of the God of Israel or of idols and their moral qualities or lack thereof because it was their belief and their behavior that really mattered to God. Now, the reigns of the king of Judah and Israel are also recorded differently. And in that count of these, the writer starts with the date that they began their reign and then the length of their reign. And then for the kings of Judah in the south, the name of their mother is recorded with just two exceptions, which is a significant difference from the accounts of the kings of the northern kingdom um, of Israel, where the father is rather named. And then in the accounts of the kings of Judah in the south, there is a judgment of whether they are good or bad. And the south had a mixture of good and bad kings, with David always being the benchmark for these. However, in the account of the kings of Israel in the north, the writer just gives reasons why they are bad, because every king in the north was evil or bad. 
The kings in the north are all compared to their first northern king, Jeroboam, who was, as we know, a bad king. In chapters 15 and 16, which we're looking at today, there are eight kings profiled according to this structure. And I've drawn up a table to illustrate this. And as you can see on that table, I've put Jeroboam and Rehoboam there as they were the first kings in the divided kingdom, which Brad taught on last week. But of the eight mentioned in our passage today, which are highlighted and bold in the table, two are from the kingdom of Judah in the south and six from the kingdom of Israel in the north. Now, I'm not going to be reading the whole chapters of 1 Kings 15 and 16. We just don't have the time for this. I'm rather going to tell you about these kings and where it's pertinent. I will be reading from the scriptures there. So first of all, the, the southern kingdom of Judah, the first king from there that's profiled today is Abijah. His name is sometimes also referred to as Abijam. And his father, Rehoboam, had 28 sons. Yes, 28. And Abijah is probably the firstborn. His mother was Marka, who was the favorite of Rehoboam's 18 wives. Again, yes, 18 wives. And she apparently had a position of authority as the queen mother throughout Abijah's reign, and also into the reign of her grandson, Asa. And King Abijah attempted to, in his reign, reclaim the 10 tribes of Israel to the north as part of his kingdom. And so there was constantly war between Abijah and Jeroboam throughout his lifetime. 1 Kings 15 verse 3 says, He committed all the sins that his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord as God, as the heart of David, his forefather, had been. So we see that Abijah's short reign was unfortunately marked by doing evil in the sight of God. And even though God had granted him victory over Israel, he continued and to make the same error that his father had made before him, Rehoboam. And that was, being, that was not being fully devoted to God. 1 Kings 15 verse 4. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord as God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him, and by making Jerusalem strong. The continuation of David's line is likened to a lamp that continues to shine. And God had promised David that there would be an heir forever on David's throne. And we know that this was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that Jesus, the light of the world, would be born into the tribe of Judah. God was faithful to David, even when David's descendants were not faithful to God. And Abijah dies after three years as king, and his son Asa then succeeds him as king. So our second king profiled from the king of Judah is Asa. And he reigns for 41 years as king. And his name in Arabic means to heal. And some healing does indeed take place during his time uh, on the throne. He begins to revive the practices of his ancestor David for the purpose of ensuring proper conduct and worship before God. And I want to read to you an account of his reign from 1 Kings 15, 11 to 15. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. So what were those things that he did right? He expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his fathers had made. He even disposed, he even deposed his grandmother, Marka, from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive Asherah pole. 
Now, this was for the worship of Asherah, who was a Canaanite mother goddess that appeared in a number, or appears in a number of ancient sources. Asa cut it down and burned into the Kidron Valley. Although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. It's interesting to note that, that his, his love of the Lord remained his whole life. He brought into the temple of the Lord the silver and gold and the articles that he and his father had dedicated. So notice here that, that he, was, um, he had a heart after God. He was not perfect. There were things that he did not do that he should have done. And there were also things that he did do that he shouldn't have. But his heart was a heart that followed after God. And the reforms which Asa brought about in, in Judah, they did serve as a beacon for the worship of the Lord, not just to Judah, but also to all the Israelites. And he gave an open invitation to members of every tribe of Israel to come and worship um, the Lord God at the temple. 2 Chronicles 59 says, He gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh and Simeon who resided with them, for many defected to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord was with him. Now this was obviously seen as a threat to the continued security of the northern kingdom and the response from them was this embargo against all traffic coming from or going into Judah. And King Baasha, who we will encounter a bit later, um, he went up against Judah. He fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or, or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. And then Asa makes a decision that is certainly not a high point for him. Instead of turning to the Lord for help in this situation, he responds to this incursion by now soliciting assistance from the king of Aram, which is now modern Syria called Ben-Hadad, and he takes all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the temple and of his own palace, and he sends this to Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. 1 Kings 15, 19 reads, Let there be a treaty between you and me, he said, as there was between my father and your father. See, I'm sending you a gift of silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Asa strips the treasuries of the temple and his palace and use them as a gift, read bribe, to Ben-Hadad, so that he would come to his aid against Israel. Now it's not mentioned in this account in 1 Kings, um, but the account of Asa that's found in 2 Chronicles tells us that Asa was, was actually rebuked by Hanani, who was a seer, for relying upon a Syrian alliance rather than relying upon Yahweh, the Lord God. And Asa, unfortunately, was so angered by his words um, that he actually responded by throwing the seer Hanani into prison. So we see here that his flaws are very evident at this point. And we are told that in his old age, his feet became diseased, and it seems to have been a really severe disease. Again, it's the book of Chronicles that records that even in his illness, he actually didn't seek help from the Lord, but only from his physicians. So he's overall assessed as a good king, and he has the blessing of a really long reign, and which reached and even exceeded the reigns of David and Solomon. And during the reign of Asa, seven different kings would be on the throne of the northern kingdom. Jeroboam, Nadab, Baasha, Ella, 
Zimri, Omri, and Ahab. 1 Kings 15.24 Then Asa rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of his father David, and Jehoshaphat, his son, succeeded him as king. Jehoshaphat, we will find, was just like his father. He did right in the sight of the Lord. And now we can look at the northern kingdom and the six kings that are profiled there in our chapters today. Now, there was not one king in their history that was morally or spiritually good. Their history was marked by assassinations, by takeovers, by, by murders, and kings often electing themselves. There was a lot of movement and power in this kingdom, and, and some, king, some kingships there were very, very short. It was a kingdom that was sadly defined by their worship of false idols and gods. The first kingdom of the north that's profiled is Nadab. 1 Kings 15, 25 to 26 says, Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of his father and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. Now his reign ended when he was murdered by Baasha from the tribe of Issachar. Abasha started this violent tradition for selecting Israel's kings, and the successor was the person who assassinated the king. So our second king profiled from the northern kingdom is Baasha. 1 Kings 15.28 reads, Baasha killed Nadab in the third year of Asa king of Judah and succeeded him as king. Now, this was not enough for him. He then went on to kill all the dynasty of Jeroboam. Every last member of that family line he murdered and destroyed. 1 Kings 15.30 This happened because of the sins Jeroboam had committed and had caused Israel to commit, and because he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger. 1 Kings 15.33-34 In the third year of Asa king of Judah, Baasha son of Ahijah became king of all Israel in Terza, and he reigned 24 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of Jeroboam and in a sin which he had caused Israel to commit. Now, it wasn't enough for this king, Baasha, to walk in the path of idolatry. As we mentioned earlier, he also wanted to stop everyone else from being able to worship the Lord. 1 Kings 16.6 tells us that when he died, he was buried in Terza, and Ella, his son, succeeded him as king. So the third king we're profiling from the northern kingdom today is Ella. 1 Kings 16.7-8 Moreover, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Jehu, son of Hanani, to Baasha and his house, because of all the evil that he had done in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger by the things he did, and becoming like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it. Ella, son of Baasha, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Terza two years. We see now that this prophecy that the prophet Jehu had brought against the household and the dynasty of Baasha comes into fruition now, as Baasha's son Ella is in power. And one of Ella's officials, called Zimri, he now plots against him. And while Ella is getting drunk in the home of one of the palace administrators, Zimri comes in, strikes him down, kills him, and then 
succeeds him as king. So the fourth king profiled today is from the Northern Kingdom is Zimri. So Zimri was essentially the captain who murdered his drunken king and then grabbed the throne for himself. He holds onto the throne for all of seven days. And they were a very busy seven days because he murders everyone from the house of Baasha. And news of Ella's death then reaches the Israelite army, who were at that time, they were involved in a campaign with the Philistines, and they're not too happy to hear this news. And they react by saying, no, they want their commanding general Omni, Omri to be the king instead. And so when Zimri hears of this and the response of the army and knows they're coming for him, he responds by taking his own life, setting the palace on fire around him and basically burning to death in that fire. 1 Kings 16, 18b to 19 reads, So he died because of the sins he had committed, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and walking in the ways of Jeroboam and in the sin that he had committed and caused Israel to commit. So the fifth king that we profile from the northern kingdom is Omri. But Omri is not just the next king very easily. There is again a struggle here. The people of Israel are split in the, the factions. Half of them support Omri, the army commander, but there's the other half who's supporting a man named Tibni. 1 Kings 16 from verse 22 reads, But Omri's followers proved stronger than those of Tibni, son of Ganath. So Tibni died and Omri became king. And then from verse 25 forward, But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all these before him. He walked in all the ways. In other words, he followed completely the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and in his sin which he had caused Israel to commit, so that they provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, succeeded him as king. So the sixth and last king profiled from the northern kingdom today is Ahab. 1 Kings 16, 29-33 In the thirty-eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel twenty-two years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. Now, the name Ethbal means Baal is alive. And so Jezebel's father um, is obviously a priest of the cult of Baal and began to serve Baal and worship him. Ahab basically married the most wicked woman that he could find. Um, the name Jezebel, even to this day, is a, a synonymous for the worst kind of woman. He sets up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Baal obviously being the predominant god of the Canaanite region. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Why is this historical account of the kings of Judah and Israel important for us to know about? You know, what relevance does it have for us right now in 2021? In grappling with this relevance um, for myself, 
the thing that the Spirit of God has laid in my heart that I want to leave with you today is this. And that is the power of spiritual influence over generations. You know, it's so interesting to see how the sins of the first king of Israel were still a driving force in the nation, six kings on. And in fact, if you read further through the, the whole of kings, you'll see it goes right beyond. The northern kingdom, they produced only evil rulers. Not one of them followed the path of righteousness. This kingdom was always defined by murder, assassinations, idolatry, false gods, um, perversion and decay of, of every moral standard. And the refrain that runs through the assessment of every king is exactly the same. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. And we see here the huge impact of evil and that evil has on a nation and left unchecked how that evil is just passed down from generation to generation to generation and across society. And I think there's significant warnings for us in this as well. Not just in, in taking up a stand against evil at a societal level um, and in our own family space and, and sphere of influence, but perhaps just that, you know, putting the spotlight of, on, on evil in our own lives and in our families' lives. And how often do we see the sins of the father becoming the sins of the children? There's such a power of influence through generations. And we're not only shaped by the physical characteristics that are passed down to us in our families, but we are deeply influenced by um, the decisions and, and patterns of thinking um, that families entrench in their lives over time. But we don't have to repeat the mistakes of our families. And many followers of Jesus may come actually from homes or backgrounds that actually knew a lot of brokenness and hurt. But we serve a God who is greater than any past circumstance that we might have come from. And there are two questions I just want to ask you to, to, ponder, the, to ponder today um, in this space. Firstly, in what area of your life is the Spirit of God shining His spotlight and inviting you to repentance and transformation so that where you once walked in darkness and bondage, you might now walk in forgiveness and freedom? And then secondly, where might you need to stop a family legacy and start a new one in a whole different spirit? You know, in the southern kingdom of Judah, the influence of David is also felt generations later. But this influence is an influence of blessing. And Asa, who was the king most profiled in, in the kingdom of Judah today, which he was David's great-great-grandson. And while his father was an evil king, his grandmother was an idol worshipper, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his forefather David had done, and as an example has been set. And the influence of David was still felt generations later. And Asa came to the throne, and, and he was dedicated to breaking the, the generational patterns of sin that he had seen in his father and even in his grandfather's lives. 
And I am, I'm just really incredibly challenged and also encouraged with this because it, it shows the blessings of being a follower of Jesus and how the blessing of that and the influence of that can continue for generations after us. And you might perhaps be discouraged at this point in time because perhaps your child is not working with the Lord now. But only the Lord knows the impact of your testimony and your witness and the impact that that might yet have in your family, even if it is in generations to come. And then there are are two lessons of real relevance from the life of the one good king who was profiled today, um, Asa. And we saw that despite being committed to God, this king also made some very real mistakes. Um, One being relying on a foreign pagan aid rather than relying on God. And when he was confronted with these mistakes, when he was given the opportunity for um, confession and for repentance, so sadly his rebellious and proud spirit causes him to refuse this and it definitely impacts the nature of his relationship with God um, from that point on. And if only he could have in this instance responded like his forefather David had when he was confronted with his sin. And and David in that space just confronts or um, responds to that with just such a spirit of honesty and brokenness and humility before the Lord. And in that space is just able to find so much healing and forgiveness. And so the lessons I think we can take from Asa is... First of all, we really need to be on guard against compromise and pride. Like we don't want to fall in the same trap that he did where we are looking for our salvation from any other source than from the Lord God. We also don't want to be in the place where our pride hardens our heart and keeps us away from intimacy with God. The second lesson from him is, In response to that, we need to keep our heart so soft to the promptings of his spirits so that when we are convicted of sin, when we are convicted of wrongdoing, we can respond in just the right spirit of confession and repentance so that we can experience God's forgiveness anew and so that nothing would be able to draw us away from the intimacy of relationship that God calls each one of us into. So as you ponder on these things, won't you draw me now, join me now as we just close our time today in prayer. Lord Jesus, we just so desire to be to be men and women who who do leave a, a profound influence for the kingdom of God. Um, far beyond our time here on this earth, Lord. We want to be able to impact generations to come um, with your truth and your power and your love. And so, Father, we so need your grace in each one of our lives in order to to be that positive influence um, where you've placed us. We want to model what it looks like to be men and women who follow after Jesus Christ. We want to model what it looks like to live out the values of of the kingdom of God. And so we need your grace and your empowering in this space. And we do lift up, Lord, our, our spheres of influence and most especially our families to you. 
and just pray for just the blessing of um, godly lives that we would lead being felt in generations to come and generations to come. And Father, we're also so wary of the um, the schemes of the enemy that seek to come against us and also the weak spots that each of us have as well. And so we ask too, Lord, that you would keep our, our hearts so soft to respond to the promptings of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, where we fall into sin and where we do make the mistakes um, that our, our, our weaknesses and our wrong choices lead us into, um, we pray, Lord, that we would just so freely choose not a rebellious spirit or, or pride, but rather the humility that's modeled by David. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word that says, if we confess our sins, you are so faithful and just, not just to forgive us of our sins, Father, but just to, to purge us of all wrongdoing. And so, Lord, won't you do that in each one of our lives? Won't you search our hearts right now? Because we are crying out, Lord, that we would be men and women who would have clean hearts before you, have lives that truly do model your grace and your goodness. And we so want to profoundly impact our families and our communities and our societies for you. And we need your grace, Lord, to be able to do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us today. And we look forward to being with you again next week. Bye.